Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Are you guys ready to get into God's Word? Man, I'll tell you something, and I've been saying it over and over, but the Holy Spirit is doing something in our midst. The Holy Spirit's doing something in, in this church. And I'm telling you, in our staff meetings, in our board meetings, we just, we feel this sense of urgency that the Holy Spirit's really wanting to move amongst our people here at this church. And I can't, as, as your pastor, I can't tell you how excited I am. And going through First Peter, or Second Peter, I feel already like I got saved all over again. <laughs> like this is just, this is a powerful book. And I hope you're enjoying it. Last, I, I want to talk a little bit, just a real quick recap of last week. Uh, Peter's going to continue today. We only went through three verses today, and I know you don't believe me, but I'm going to do it. Today we're actually going to look at verse 4 through 22, but I'm going to kind of fly over it because really what he does is just go into greater detail of what he's already covered. And so a lot of it's just him repeating himself from the first three verses. Anytime a, a, an author in the Bible repeats himself, that's usually an indicator that what he's saying is pretty important. So just a recap of last week, there were false prophets among the people. He talks about how there were false prophets uh, of Israel in the Old Testament. It was a matter of history. False prophets were a constant problem in the Old Testament. Peter says there's going to be false teachers among you, and we focused on those words, among you, because he's writing to the church, and he says there's going to be false prophets among you. So he's not talking about new age people that we see on television. He's talking about people in the local church, members of a local congregation. And understand this, that there is no such thing as a pure church. As we we get into this and we talk about false teachers, you need to be able to understand that there are Christians who have weaknesses. We are all human. So that you're looking for a false church on this side of heaven, good luck. That's, That's not what Peter's addressing here. He's a He's addressing false teachers, those that are propagating a false gospel. I like the way that Warren Wiersbe says it. He says, Satan is the counterfeiter. He has a false gospel. We see that in the, in the book of Galatians. That false gospel is preached by false ministers. We see that in 2 Corinthians. And that these false ministers are producing false Christians. We see that in 2 Corinthians. And that Satan plants his counterfeits wherever God plants true believers. We see that all throughout the gospels, right? Now, we're living in urgent times. We are living in urgent times, critical times, desperate times. We are living in times, uh, according to Dr. Michael Brown, where the watchmen on the wall need to sound the alarm, stir the people of God, warn and teach and call to action. That's the day we find ourselves as a church. But instead, false teaching is on the rise 
and we need to be aware of it. So many of our churches, so many of our social media outlets, the watchmen are sleeping themselves and they're lulling people to sleep. So how in the world can we awaken a dying world if we're not even aware of the false teachers among us? The truth is that in our churches today, sermon after sermon, teaching after teaching, on the internet, TV, radio, social media, even in our books, we hear, this, we hear messages that are designed to make us feel comfortable, to make us feel good about ourselves, cause us to sleep spiritually. We hear over and over, all is well, little children, all is well. Where's the sense of urgency? Peter's warning for the church 2,000 years ago is still urgent. The biggest crisis facing the evangelical global church today is this growing lack of biblical literacy. And I know you've heard me talk about this. You know I'm passionate about it. But Thomas uh, Schiermacher, he's, he's the Secretary General of the World Evangelical Alliance. He said our biggest problem is that, the Bi- is that Bible knowledge is fading away. This, he says, is the utmost problem we have beyond all theological differences, financial problems, and political questions. Men are afraid of preaching the Bible and its hard message because they're afraid of offending. Or even worse, counterfeit preaching or, or shallow preaching is producing shallow converts. And even worse, counterfeit preaching has produced counterfeit converts. Adding insult to injury, these shallow or counterfeit converts don't have any idea that they are actually shallow or counterfeit because they've been exposed to a fake gospel. Our country and our church today, if they want to see true revival, then they're going to have to recover or or actually rediscover the gospel. The real reason that we need revival is that we have strayed so far from the biblical gospel. And when that happens, it opens the doors for false teachers to come creeping in to the church. And now Peter's going to continue this discussion on these false teachers. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to make it really easy on you. Three, three truths today. Three truths that these false teachers are about these false teachers so you can identify them. And we're just building upon what he's already said in verse 1 through 3. Here we go. You ready? Let's pray. I prayed this prayer last week, and I'm going to pray this prayer before every sermon as long as I preach here at this church. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. God, as we are about to go into your word, I pray that your word would go into us. God, let its transformative power illuminate within us, transform us, move us, motivate us, fix us, and change us. And I pray you'd be God in the midst of this service, in the midst of this place, in the midst of the people that are here today. I pray you would establish yourself in the hearts of your people. Everyone who is present in the sanctuary today, that if you're not their God, you would be by the end of the service that those watching online, you would establish yourself in their lives and in their hearts. God, anybody, I don't care where they are, they're driving, they're watching on the beach, I don't, I don't care where they are, be established among them. And God, I thank you because you are strong enough for whatever I am facing. You are strong enough for whatever anybody here today is facing. You're strong enough, you're good enough to get us through whatever we find ourselves in today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You ready to get at it? 
All right, here's the first truth, the condemnation of the false teacher. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9 real quick. Look with me, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. By the way, this Greek word is Tartarus. And, and before I even go further, I just I w- I want to say something because so many people don't like the idea of hell. And as a preacher, it's not like my favorite topic to preach on. I don't love preaching on hell. I don't love preaching on sin. But you need to understand this, that Jesus spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. In fact, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 70 times Jesus refers to hell, 70 times. He used a language, too, that, that strikes terror in the heart, or should strike terror in the heart of the reader. He uses that language to talk about hell. Hell's an eternal and biblical reality and it's interesting because Pew Forum says that 87% of, of people today in America believe in God, 74% believe in heaven, and 59% believe in hell. Jesus believed in hell. He spoke about it a lot. He spoke about it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He spoke of it as a place where the fire is not quenched. He talks about hell a lot. Now, I'll get back to that in a minute. Verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, when seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, told you this is a tough verse tough passage to preach verse 7 and if he rescued righteous lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard then the lord knows how to rescue this gets this is my favorite verse then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment now, what we just read, it's all about these, the, the, the future of these false teachers. Peter's painting a real vivid description of what's going to happen to them. And what he does is he uses three Old Testament examples. You know, we learn a lot from uh, those that have gone before us, either good or bad, right? <laughs> we, learn, we learn a lot. I grew up as a middle child, and that was really good because my brother was a doofus. And he always got in trouble, and I learned exactly what not to do. <laughs> Thank you, Jordan. Everything he got in trouble for, I, I made a mental note, don't do that. <laughs> don't ever do that. So we, this, is, this is what Peter's doing here is he's going to bring up the past and talk about three different examples. And it's all to illustrate one major point. If you're taking notes, write this down. God will judge sin. God will judge sin. Know that. God doesn't wink at sin. He's not going to ignore it. He's holy. He's righteous. Now, I know the topic of sin, it makes us uncomfortable, and that's okay. Makes me uncomfortable, just so you know. It should make us uncomfortable, because when I read about sin in the Bible, it brings home the reality of just how sinful I really am. When I read God's word, it's like this reality check for me. Wow, I'm undeserving of God's grace and his mercy. 
When I read the Bible, sometimes I come away from reading the Bible and I think, hell, hell's too good for me. I mean, honestly, it, sin should, should mess us up a little bit. When we talk about sin, it should mess us up a little. It should make us uncomfortable. I'm convicted still after 39 years of serving Jesus. I'm still convicted when I read my Bible of the sin in my life. I'm still working out sin. But my life is headed in a new direction, right? We talked about it last week. I should be disgusted with sin. The topic shouldn't be something I avoid. It's not something we should avoid as Christians just because it makes us uncomfortable. It should be something we take on. We need to discuss sin. We need to talk about it. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Sin leads to death. Sin only brings destruction. Sin separates us from God. This is something we need to talk about. And we love to talk about God's grace, his mercy, and his love, and we should. Those are my favorite things to preach on. I love it. When the authors of the Bible go to God's grace and mercy and I get to tackle one of those texts, it's fun to preach. But it doesn't take long reading the Bible to come to the conclusion that this is, God is holy. God is a holy God. The chief attribute of God declared in the Bible is holiness. Holiness. And this is something God wants us to know about him. He's holy. In heaven, God is, is continually praised. And you know what they're singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's an attribute that God wants us to know about him. And God in his holiness, he hates sin. Hates sin. He judges sin. And we can never compromise on that truth. And all throughout the Bible, we learn that God is holy. And the idea behind the concept of holiness is separation. It comes from a word meaning to separate or cut off. God is separate or cut off from everything that is sinful and evil. He can't tolerate sin. And I want to spend some time on this because our understanding of God's holiness should give us a healthy reverence and fear of God and help us understand his judgment. All right, C.S. Lewis once noted that many people talk about meeting God as if it would be a nice, warm experience, maybe even give, give someone the fuzzies. Then he says this, they need to think again. Now, when I first read this from C.S. Lewis, I was a teenager, and I hated that he said that. I didn't understand the whole concept or the idea behind it. My idea of a God at 13 years old was I come up to the altar and I experience the warm and fuzzies. I like that. That's the God I like. But, but it's interesting because if you look at the prophet Isaiah, he had this encounter with the living God and, and God's holiness and his response. It might shock us. In fact, look with me at Isaiah chapter 6, 4 through 5. It says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why would Isaiah describe having an encounter with God like this? Why would Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost? Well, I'll tell you why. Because that is a perfect description of what Isaiah was feeling when he encountered the God Almighty. Woe is me, for I'm lost. Everything that he thought held his life together, his sense of goodness, was demolished as he experienced what real goodness was. 
You see, we have no clue how far we've fallen, how worldly we've become until we have that encounter with God and his word. This is why the real gospel absolutely needs to be preached. Because when we rediscover his words, our eyes are open and we are undone before an almighty God. Lord have mercy. Things are way worse than we realized. It helps us come to grips with the realities of our sin and our disobedience. And we just, we just realize, wow, we're way sicker than we, we thought. Good thing God's grace is nearer than we thought too. <laughs> But we will never experience healing until we realize how sick we are. This is, why, this is exactly what salvation is. We say yes to Jesus and the Holy Spirit enters our life. And everything changes and now the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we start to see just how sinful we really are. I love how Rosaria Butterfield describes it. She says, conversion is like a train wreck. It jumbles you up and leaves you feeling undone before it ever starts putting you back together again. It's a hard fact, but the truth is that if you feel good about yourself, I'm not really sure you've ever really met God. Think about, we, we love to play the comparison game in humanity, right? We judge ourselves by comparing our moral worth to other people. And that way, we always have someone that we could look good. We do. My kids do this all the time all the time, just, just yesterday. We have a rule in our house when we have desserts. And unfortunately, we didn't have to make this rule because we have kids. Liz had to make the rule because of me. <laughs> so there's a rule, you can only have one dessert. That's it, you know, we share our desserts. If we cut up a cake, we'll cut it up into five pieces. You each get, and we eat little cakes, don't. You each get one piece, that's the rule. So yesterday we brought home a brownie. And we cut it up into five pieces and Asher ate three. He ate three, and Liz blamed me at first when she saw three were gone. She said, Justin, follow the rule. I said, Liz, I haven't even had a brownie yet. <laughs> Asher says, sorry, Dad, it was me. I said, Asher, you did this? He looks at me. I said, why would you do this? You know the rules. You're not supposed to eat more than one. You have one brownie. He looked at me and said, Allie got in trouble at Wednesday at school. And it was way worse, Dad, than eating three brownies, what Allie did at school. We do that, right? Here, Asher's in trouble. He did something wrong, and he's going to compare what he did in comparison to his older sister, who apparently got in trouble at school. He wants me to know all about it. Here's the thing, though. When we compare ourselves to a holy God, and that's what we're supposed to do, don't compare yourselves to somebody else. We compare ourselves to a holy God. We see his true holiness and everything that we thought was good about us falls apart. When we see real goodness, God's goodness, we can't help but feel the way Isaiah felt when he wrote this. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Isaiah said that when he sees and he hears from God that his lips are unclean, why in the world would he mention his lips? He's a prophet for crying out loud. The guy uses his lips to bring God glory. Why would, I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, Isaiah, your eyes, your ears, what you watch, what you listen to, but your lips for crying out loud, that's bringing God glory. Why would you say your lips are unclean? They represent his greatest strength. But you know what? When you're experiencing God, you realize that your greatest strengths and gifts are really nothing at all. 
It's like what Tim, Timothy Keller says, the holiness of God doesn't make Isaiah ashamed of his weakness. It makes him ashamed of his strengths because they aren't really strengths at all. Every one of us here today has something in our life that we place our trust in other than God. And when we do that, we don't truly understand the holiness of God. Because just one glance at God in his holiness and whatever we're putting as our trust or what we're trusting our goodness to be, it just falls apart in the presence of God. There is nobody in here who is deserving of God's grace and his mercy. I don't deserve his grace and his mercy. Anything that I can produce on my own is filthy rags before a holy God. It's a hard pill to swallow. I get it. <laughs> I know. It's not just our areas of weakness that keep us from God, it's our strengths. Because when we're strong, we take our eyes off the holiness of God. You know, just a transparent moment as your pastor, this is something God's working on me in the last couple of weeks. I, I've really experienced this. In fact, I've got mentors in my life who have really challenged me and shaped me. I had one speak into my life about two weeks ago and I was so mad at him. I was so angry. I mean, I don't, I don't get angry, but I kind of let him have it in his office. He said, you know, Justin, you're not Pentecostal. I said, you know what? Sometimes I don't even think you're saved, okay? <laughs> I know you, don't forget that. He said, no, listen, sometimes being Pentecostal is being dependent on the Spirit. And see, when you come into my office so many times, you're talking about what you can do. That's what I keep hearing. Hey, help me out. Help me out. What can I do to help my church grow? What can I do? What system can I put in place? All of this revolves around you, Justin. You're not dependent on the Holy Spirit. And he brought this verse to my attention again. Everything that you can offer to God is a bunch of filthy rags. <laughs> Focus on God's holiness and the Holy Spirit. It's a hard pill to swallow. I'm preaching to myself here. When, when Isaiah saw God in his holiness, he, he was completely terrified, and rightly so. It was a scary moment, but it, it was a cleansing moment too because the same God who revealed his perfection also brought a coal from the altar to touch Isaiah's lips, declaring him clean. That coal had been drenched in the blood of a sacrificial lamb, the only way that Isaiah was able to stand before God's holiness. Nothing that you and I do, something that Jesus Christ did for us, is what enables us to stand before a holy God. You see, we might naturally resist the idea of a holy God, but only a holy God can cleanse us. Only a holy God is worthy of our worship. Only a holy God can put us together when our human efforts have failed. And it's a holy God that is going to judge and condemn sin. We've lost our reverence for God. We've tried to fit him into our box. We've devalued him while elevating everything else in our life and by doing this we've created our own God in which the world has no need for we have made God out to be something he isn't at all and you want to know the truth that God is absolutely boring the God we've created is boring and irrelevant to the world but that's not the God of the Bible man the God of the Bible he's anything but boring I read this incredible book on God's holiness, and I encourage, man, if you're a reader, get this one. Uh, I, just the title itself drew me in, Yawning at Tigers, You Can't Tame God, So Stop Trying, written by Drew Dyke. The authors describes what, that, that when we confine God within our parameters, we don't limit God because he can't be limited, but we do undercut our own spiritual life. 
People grow bored with the God they invent, a perfectly tame and safe God, a God you can never find in Scripture. He says, I'm done apologizing for God. He says, every few months an atheist writes a book accusing God of being mean and somehow uh, non-existent. Then we spill gallons of ink in response trying to defend God's actions. So I'm not trying to bash an apologist because he says I think what they do is crucial. He says, my beef is that after we get through explaining away every passage in the Bible where God seems mean, he comes off as hapless or misunderstood. He said, I would rather just say this. Hey, listen, God's dangerous. That's the way the Bible portrays him. You don't have to like it. You can deny his existence. You can pet him if you like. You might not get your arm back. But he says, I'm done trying to explain God's dangerous qualities away because some of it isn't explainable. And because at some level, we must simply accept the way he has chosen to reveal himself. He goes on in more detail. He says, if the church tries to be politically correct by avoiding the descriptions of God in the Bible that might offend society, that it's going to only prove to be the death of our worship, our gospel, our mission, and our holiness. In the end, we make ourselves trivial. I think in the heart, the, every heart that remains this deep-seated desire to stand in the presence of a holy and transcendent God. Right? That's what I want at our church. I want the presence of God to be in this place so strong that people driving down the road are drawn to it like a magnet. There's something different about that church. Something's happening. I want to be in the presence of a holy God. People are thirsty for transcendence. They need to hear about a holy God. And even if they deny they are sinful, I think deep down they know that they are. They know they need the grace and mercy of a holy God. Here's my favorite line that he says, God is not a kitten, he's a tiger. He's good, but he's not tame. He's the God we find in Ezekiel. If we choose to live in denial, our worship will weaken, our standards of purity will diminish, our mission will skid to a halt, our message will be hollowed out, and our part in God's global work will become more and more trivial. Now, why in the world you're thinking, man, he hasn't even gotten to the text, really. Don't worry, I'm going to get done on time. Why have I spent so much time in talking about God's holiness? And some, some of you are thinking, I don't, I don't even see that word in our text. I see the word holy in our text. The word may not be in the text, but it's behind everything Peter's talking about. You see, Peter's about to describe the tiger, not the kitten. He gives us three examples of God's judgment, and it's encouraging to know God wins in the end. Should always be, it should also be a warning to us, God wins in the end. So it's encouraging, it's also a warning, God wins in the end. God wins in the end, he doesn't tolerate sin. In verses four through nine, he warns us that since God has punished unrighteousness in the past, he's gonna punish it in the future. It's good, I, I love this quote from Warren Buffett. He says, it's good to learn from your mistakes, it's better to learn from other people's mistakes. Like I said, I was a middle child. <laughs> Thank you, Jordan, for all the dumb things you did. Peter illustrates God's wrath, wrath with these three cases in verses four through eight, and then he draws his conclusion in verse nine. The first is in verse four. He talks about uh, the case of the fallen angels. And what a lesson here, right? Angels, they're the most glorious and mighty beings under God, but all their power and dignity was of no use when they sinned. God was unsparing in his sentence towards them. 
So he uses them as an example. In Revelations chapter 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So those false teachers really should learn from this, right? They despise authority. They reject the lordship of Christ. And, and here they're hearing the sentence of Jesus Christ. It's being foretold here. It's like in Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You, you're cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this should be a warning enough for these false teachers. But then he gives a second illustration. It's an illustration of God's judgment. It's the case, is the case of Noah's generation. We see this in verse 5. Now, if the false teachers don't learn the lesson from the fallen angels, let them learn it from the flood, right? God swept away the ungodly in judgment. And, and even though the rebellious and, and um, well, the rebellious of today, they may think they're safe, they should learn from this. They should learn from this. It's put here as a warning, right? That's why chapter, verse 3 said, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It'll come upon them with horrifying swiftness. This is in the word of God. The third, third illustration here is the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. He brings up Sodom and Gomorrah. So if the case of fallen angels and the case of Noah's generation don't slow people down from following false teachers or being a false teacher, then surely the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah will wake them up to God's wrath. I mean, for crying out loud, these cities were judged for the very things that these false teachers were pushing and promoting. And then to close out his lesson on history, Peter states in verse 9 this, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the, the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So, and of course, Peter doesn't just mean God knows how to do it. He means he's done it in the past, he's going to do it in the future. Our present age isn't quite like the days of Noah, but it's a lot like the days of Noah. Many professing Christians, they're abandoning holiness, the call to be separate, and they're compromising with the world. In some ways, the church is growing a weak testimony, and the world right now doesn't believe for one bit that God is going to come back. And people laugh at us when we say that. Society is full of immorality, especially the kind of sin that Sodom was famous for. There's immorality all around us, and it may look like God's sleeping. It may seem like he doesn't care, but listen to me. The Bible is clear. One day, he will judge sin. He will judge sin. And then it's going to be too late. But for God's people, they'll be delivered from judgment. God could not judge Sodom until Lot and his family were out of the city. And the assemblies of God, uh, uh, that's what our church is. They believe that God will not send wrath on this world until he takes his own people out of home and to heaven. They quote passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with him. One day soon, God will judge this world, and God will judge sin. Okay, so he uses those three case studies, and you know why they're so powerful? powerful? Well, look with me at verse 10, because here we see the character of the false teachers. We see the character, and we see this in verses 10 through 16. Verse 10, look with me, and especially, now some of your translations, they say chiefly. This is the, the chief characteristic of false teachers, and especially those who indulge in the lust 
of defiling passion. This is sexual immorality and despise authority. Now listen, church, passion is good. Passion is a good thing. I want to talk about it for a minute. But if it's misdirected, it's really bad. Okay, for example, marriage. Marriage is designed for passion, right? I hope you spouses are passion, passionate for each other. Uh, passion, marriage is designed for passion. Passion is inclusive of the intimate relationship between husband and wife, right? So let me just say this very plainly and clearly. Jesus, God, the Bible, is not against sex. I know a lot of you are like, man, Pastor Justin's really straying off the text. I'm not. Stay with me. Sex, it's for marriage, right? Sex goes in marriage like a fire goes in a fireplace. You guys have heard this. It's very hot. It's very passionate. And all of that is very good. It's what God designed it to be. But if you go home, you decide, I'm going to build a fire in my house. I'm going to recommend you do it in the fireplace, right? Not in the middle of your bedroom, don't go do it in the middle of your living room. <laughs> I recommend you choose carefully where to build that fire at your house. If you build it in the fireplace, you're good. You're okay. It's going to be all right. Okay? You build it somewhere else, you're going to have real trouble. <laughs> right? The passions of intimacy, they're made for marriage. Taken out, it just burns everyone and everything down. Okay? So what... what Peter's talking about here is defiling passion. What we need to do is not defile passion, but direct passion towards God and the things that God intends for us to be passionate about. So passion's not bad. It's just bad when it's misdirected. Now, number two, he talks about rebellion, which is despising authority. That's there's, there's no authority beyond me. You can't judge me. How many of you met someone like that? How many of you met someone like that in leadership sometimes? Okay, who are you to tell me? I, I disagree with you. Your bias, your prejudice, your privilege, that's your culture. This is real today. <laughs> this is real. This, this exists in the church. And God says, guess what? You're all wrong. <laughs> I don't care what culture, what education you have. I don't care what class of society you were raised in. Overall and overall, the cultures is God. And he rules through laws that are unchanging because God doesn't change. And he expects us to change. And then it says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. False teachers are bold, pushing their message. They're bold. In our world today, we see this. We see it in hashtags, parades, bumper stickers, social media comments, websites, blogs. They've got no problem pushing their agenda. And here's the deal. Humanity's fallen nature, it encourages this pride. And when the ego's at stake, these false teachers will stop at absolutely nothing in order to promote and protect themselves. Their attitudes are going to be completely opposite of God who willingly emptied himself to become a servant and then he died as a sacrifice of our sin. He says they won't tremble. They have this boldness that almost seems heroic, by the way. A lot of times they like to do that. They like to paint it in a way that seems heroic. I'm on this holy, righteous cause. Holy and righteous, they say. They'll use words like that. They're only living for themselves. They're acting like they're fighting for a cause, but the cause is themselves. 
They're only living for themselves. Outwardly, yeah, it might look, man, this sounds good. They're fighting for something good, right? Seems like they're serving God here with this message, but inwardly they're feeding their own egos and they're feathering their own nests. It's all about them. The word glorious ones, the immediate reference is probably speaking about people in positions of authority, but it could also mean angels because Peter in the very next text, he refers to them. Look with me at verse 11. It says, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So look, even the angels don't get into the business of judging and criticizing. Even the angels, they don't speak evil of others. Do you guys know that speaking evil of others is a serious sin? I'm, I'm always amazed when, in, in church cultures, and I can say this because I've grown up in the church. I was born in the pew, okay? I was that pastor's kid that got in a lot of trouble growing up. <laughs> was not a good idea to turn the baptismal tank into a hot tub party when, when I was in the seventh grade. I grew up in the church, so I can say these things. Sometimes in our, in our church culture, we always focus on the big sins, right? There are certain big sins that we would, man, if somebody did that, they're just, they're horrible, they're evil. Somebody made a mistake before marriage. Oh my goodness, let's condemn them. This person struggles with this sin. Oh my goodness. And then we, we don't talk about the other sins that are mentioned in the Bible just as much. Sins that bring disunity, sins that bring dissension. We don't talk about criticism. The Bible is very clear that we're not to criticize our fellow believers, and we, we don't have any problem with that. In fact, we love to get on the social media and talk about it on the thread. We love to sit in the atrium and c- carry on conversations where somebody's being criticized and judged. We like to look at other people in the church and say, I am so much more holy and righteous than they are. Did you hear that they did this or did that? Yeah, we don't do that. Their kids went and saw that movie. I'd never let my... They played that video game. Oh, we do that. We don't talk about those sins. Look, even, even the angels don't get in to judging the sins of these fallen angels. They won't do it. They leave that to God. Man, that should be a lesson for us. Verse 12, it says, but these like irrational animals. Ouch, that's cruel. Here he goes again. Peter keeps calling them animals. Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their own destruction. Man, he compares these false teachers to animals whose destiny is to be slaughtered. Animals have life, but they live purely by instinct. They lack the sensibilities that humans possess. Have you ever been around an animal? It's like, have you ever watched uh, Deadly Attraction, this, this TV show where it talks about these people who want to get these pets as lions and tigers and what happens? They're not supposed to be pets. So it doesn't end good. The end of the show is never a happy ending. Animals have an instinct. They don't have the sensibilities that we do. I still remember going to my friend's house. I was a wrestler growing up. We loved to wrestle. And so I was in my friend's house, and he had a Doberman pincher, and we wrestled because that's what we do. We were on the wrestling team. We were practicing some moves. That dog kicked into its instinct, and you know what it did? It saw me wrestling its owner, and I got bit. Now, I wasn't mad at the dog. I was terrified of dogs for a long time. I wasn't mad at the dog because it's just doing its instinct, right? That's its instinct. It's going to protect. He calls them animals. 
That's what Peter refers to them. Verse 13, suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Hmm, that's interesting. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. What in the world does that mean? Let me tell you, they're not even ashamed of it anymore. They're not ashamed of it. They're not hiding it anymore. They're not even embarrassed by it anymore. What they should have a funeral for, they're now having a parade for. Now, I've seen this recently. I've seen this with, with church leaders taking great pride in the fact that they're now supporting certain lifestyles that contradict God's word. And they're not ashamed about it. They're posting it on their websites. They're flying flags from their poles. They're, they're not ashamed of it at all. They'll get on social media and brag about it, in fact. I've seen this with Christian artists that I grew up under, that I love, Christian musicians, now coming against churches that are going to take a stand against sin. They're proud of it. They're going to get on their websites, and they're going to make sure everybody knows where they stand. They're not, they're not hiding it anymore. There's this whole movement coming with, uh, with social justice warriors, quote-unquote Christians that are going, going to change uh, gender and marriage and sexuality and encourage lots of rebellion in the name of a bright new future that promised to be glorious, grand, and good. And all of it's false prophecy with false teachers. I know I'm coming hard. I know. They're proud of it, and they revel in the daytime. If you're a Christian and you're living publicly against the will of God, that's something that needs to be changed, not celebrated. Verse 14, they, they have eyes full of adultery. How graphic is that? Insatiable for sin. Do you know what this means? Peter painted a vivid picture of a man who cannot see a woman without lustful thoughts arising in his heart just, as, just at the sight of her. Makes me think of the words in Jesus in Matthew, uh, of Jesus in Matthew 5, 28. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hmm. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, he says. Entice, it means to entrap, it catch by bait. They use trickery. They use trickery. In fact, I remember growing up and I don't want to get into names, but I remember growing up when there was a major scandal in the church, and I was just a young boy, and I remember it was all over the news and all over the TV. I remember our parents would shut the news off. They didn't want us to see, see it, but it's pretty hard. Everybody at school knew I was a Christian, so I would hear about it. And I remember one of the ladies actually was enticed, baited, and trapped by someone who was supposed to be a godly minister, a spiritual leader, and they trapped her, and, and she was just a young girl. And I remember she said she was told that if she pleases the man of God and takes care of him, she's taking care of the sheep. You talk about what, this is what Peter's talking about here. This is what he's talking about. Trained, it means exercising. It's habitual, like muscles that get trained. They're trained to do this. Accursed children, it means they have judgment coming. False teachers have judgment coming. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Gives another Old Testament story here from Numbers 22, and I, I don't have time to get into it, but it really is an incredible story. The, the gist of it, though, is that Balaam was trying to justify doing something wrong. 
He wanted God to approve him to do something wrong, and he wanted money and financial gain instead of obeying God. So God uses this donkey. I love the stories of the Bible. Just so you know, I really do believe a donkey spoke to him. I do. But really, I mean, God already said no to so many things. Don't pray to God about something that he's already said no to. And why would I even say that? Because you'd be surprised how many times as a pastor I have to tell somebody who's in a, in a marriage, who's made a covenant before God, no, you don't need to pray. Do I divorce this person and run off with this person? I can tell you already, you don't need to pray about that. God said no in his word. Don't go pray about something that God has already said no to, right? Don't be a Balaam. Goodness sakes, I don't want any talking donkeys in New Heights Church. He uses this because it's an example. It's a display of pride and, and weakness. Balaam was willing to do this deed because the price was right. The status was right. The honor was right. This is the character of a false teacher, according to Peter. Someone who is willing to do something they know is wrong if the price is right. Well, hear me out. What's the price for a false teacher? Well, I know it ain't the gospel, but it's going to fill seats, right? Right? What's the price that we'll pay? What about, but today, preachers are saying, man, I know this really isn't the gospel. I know it doesn't line up to God's word, but it's a message that people like, and it's going to fill seats, and then I'm going to feel better about myself, and I'm going to do anything to fill these seats and get people. I know it doesn't line up. Man, what is the right price? What's the right price? I know this is right, but what are, my, what are the people at work going to think about me? What are the people going to think? What, what's the price, Right? I know it's not biblically accurate, but man, it'll promote unity and peace. It may not be supported biblically, but it's what this culture wants right now from a church, and it's what I need to do. False teachers, they have their future judgment coming, though. Man, this is, this is a lot for your pastor to read. This puts me in line. Makes me, it puts me in check. It makes sure everything that I'm preaching from this pulpit is not to build my own ministry, is not so that I, I get glory or accolades, what I preach from this pulpit better be honoring and lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. Whether people like it or not, that's what I'm called to do. False teachers, they've got a future judgment coming. God will get the final word. And Peter has, one, Peter has a, a good job of describing the character of these teachers. They care more about themselves than anyone else, including God. And this leads them to the third and the last point. We see this in verse 17 through 22. It's the false claims of these future teachers or these leaders, the false claims. Look with me at verse 17. These are waterless springs. What could is a spring without water? I've been hiking before and I forgot my water bottle and I will find a drinking fountain out in the middle of nowhere. I should know better. There's not going to be water near there, but I'll go up and what a letdown it is when I hit that little button and no water's coming out. Man, right? What good is a spring without water? It says, these are waterless springs and, and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They promise, but they don't deliver. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, that means they make a lot of noise, but they don't make a lot of difference. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Well, there it is again. Those who bear, are barely escaping from those who will live in error. Man, I could spend so much time on this, but I won't. We like to fo focus on method, style, but not content. 
I'm all for someone who is gifted as a great speaker or is very captivating, but the question is what content did they have? What content did they have? They're so dynamic. They're so powerful. What did they preach on? I don't know. But they were so good. What did they preach on? I don't know. Sometimes this happens at youth. Not our youth group. I'm to me, youth conventions with the gifted speakers. I always felt like that as a pastor. They'd come back and they would say, man, he was such a good preacher, Pastor Justin. It was so awesome. I'm so glad I got to listen to him. He's just better than you. <laughs> you, try, you try not to get offended by it. You're like, yeah, I'm glad you were touched. What did he preach on? I don't know. <laughs> but it was awesome, right? I get it. You, you, you can have someone with content that's very boring, but you can have someone who is so entertaining with no content. And if I had to choose, I'm choosing content. Okay? Truth over style. When you listen to a preacher, ask yourself if what he is saying is biblical, not from the Bible, because they use verses, but they use them out of context. Is it true in light of what all the Scripture teaches? Is it biblical? Not did he use verses. Yeah, he used a verse. He quoted a few Scriptures out of context. He used a bunch of different Scriptures from different places, and out of context, he misinterpreted and misapplied. He's using the Bible as a pretext to convey his own meaning. He's actually writing on the scriptures instead of submitting to the scriptures. Okay? Real teachers teach God's word. All of it. All of it. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. These false teachers promise freedom, but they aren't even free themselves. You want to be free? Follow us, but only Jesus Christ can set you free. Jesus Christ is the only one who can set you free from sin, from Satan, from yourself. If you have a true teacher of the word of God, he's always going to be pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus is about real freedom. And you're only free, listen, you're only free if you can stop. You're only free if you can stop, you're not controlled. If, if you can't stop having sex and you're not married or outside of marriage, you're not free. You're a slave to your loss, right? This is what false teachers do. They teach freedom and it's part of this demonic deception because Satan is a liar. And I'm tired of seeing Jesus followers be addicted to sex, to porn, to gambling, to power, to money, to alcohol, to drugs. It's addiction and it's the language of slavery in the Bible. Think about our world world today. Our culture is built on this idea of pursuing whatever makes you happy. Feels good, then do it. If you wanna do it then, and it's good for you, well, go ahead, do it. You can, you can do whatever you wanna do. As long as it makes you happy, you can be whatever you want to be as long as you're happy. Happiness is what matters. Pursue what makes you happy. And guess what? Did you know the number one prescription medication in America is antidepressants? How ironic, because all of us are pursuing happiness. Let me tell you why that is. Because Satan is a liar. He's a liar, and he promises freedom, but all he, pro- all he delivers is slavery. He promises life and all he delivers is death. He promises joy and all he delivers is grief. Verse 20 says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse from the first. They make false promises and false professions. This doesn't mean they were saved. It means they were reformed. We're foolish to not acknowledge and understand that someone can look like a Christian, even sound like a Christian, and still not be a Christian. 
Just because you are here today at church listening to this message does not mean you're a Christian. Just because you read the Bible does not mean you're a Christian. Just because you've been baptized does not mean you're a Christian. You can worship, sing worship songs, it doesn't make you a Christian. There are people that know the truth, but they turn away. An apostate is a person who was never born again. They were never regenerated, but they looked a lot like a Christian on the exterior. It happens in our church today. False teachers knew the truth, but they had never been born again. Verse 21, for, and we're going to finish here, for if it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Some people think, well, if I just sit in church, that, that'll help. I'll sit. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't love Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, all sitting in church is going to do is increase the things you're accountable for. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The, the sow, after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. Okay, you understand that 2,000 years ago, they didn't have dogs as pets. <laughs> Verse 12, he described false teachers as irrational animals. Now he gets really specific. They're like a dog or a pig. Peter's saying that these people will do what their unregenerate, unredeemed nature is really like. If they've not been given a new nature by a new birth, they'll just live their old life. Here's my question for you, church. Where's your walk ending up? Whatever belief system you're choosing to walk down, does it end in the sheep pen under the care of the good shepherd or like these animals that return to their own filth? Strong point Peter's making. Make the decision to follow Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus. Jesus can give you new nature. He can give you new desires. Otherwise, we're just the same old dog and pig. And what Jesus does through the Holy Spirit is he gives new desires that, 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 you, that you live in, that you live with. It's not that all of a sudden you're changed. You're still going to make mistakes. But you have these new desires in your heart to please God and walk away from sin. That's what I used to wallow in, not anymore. I ain't going back anymore. I'm not going there. Have you met Jesus? Have you gotten new desires? Has God changed you at the level of being? If not, then you need a savior, and he's the Lord Jesus Christ. And once he gives you a new nature, you're gonna struggle with things, but you're gonna have a power to walk in victory over these things. What I want to do right now is I want to close our service. I know I went long. We, we're going to do some worship. At this point, if you need to go, you are officially dismissed to go. But I want to open up our altars because one of the things that we're pushing here at this church is for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to give you a chance to respond. Not, I'm not, if you're responding to salvation, that's awesome. Our prayer team is going to be up here. Salvation's really easy. You just confess that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus. It's that easy. You can come into the family of God just like that. And I'm going to have prayer workers up here who would love to pray with you and help you take those next steps. But all an altar call is, is an invitation. All throughout the Bible, we see God giving people an invitation to respond to what he's doing. That's all that it is. You might say, yeah, but it's so cultural. You bet it is. Yeah, you'll never find an altar call in the Bible, but you will find an invitation over and over and over and over again in the Bible. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, there is this invitation from the God Almighty. Hey, come and respond to what I'm doing. The Holy Spirit is moving in our church right now, and that's all that this is, is a response. Some of you right now have heard this message. You're battling sickness. You're battling cancer. You're battling something, and God's urging 
encouraging you to respond to the altar because maybe he wants to do something in your life. Some of you got loved ones that have walked away from God and you are tired of it and you want to respond. I heard this today. I'm going to respond. I'm going to pray for this loved one. Some of you just need a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit and that can happen too. That's all it is, is an invitation. That's it. And so at the end of every service, we want to give an invitation. We want to invite you to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. It's like Pastor Enos said earlier, some of you don't know what that is. It's the Holy Spirit. He's called the hound of heaven because he's gonna chase you and pursue you till he gets you. Father God, we love you and praise you and worship you. I thank you for this awesome group of people. I thank you for being the God in the midst of all of us, for being God in our lives, in our hearts, in our homes, in our families. We love you and we are gonna make a stand for you. Move in this place, I pray, and in our families. We want to see miracles. God, we want to see the prodigals return. We want to see sickness healed. We just, we want to see marriages restored. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that our, as a body, we would continue to respond to what you're doing. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.